Hi, I'm Jennifer Gassage. And my name is Mateusz Benka. This is the Let's Talk Ecosystems podcast. From activists to entrepreneurs, leaders to practitioners, we will learn how young people are making positive change for our planet. In this series, we talk with changemakers who are taking action to restore and protect nature as we move forward in the United Nations Decade for Ecosystem Restoration. Before we start our podcast, I have a question to you, Jenna. Did you know that buying chocolate can help to fight deforestation? I didn't know that necessarily. I mean, I think I've heard that there is a connection between cocoa, the way cocoa is produced. Cocoa goes into chocolate as the base. And if it's not produced sustainably, that may lead to deforestation. But I'm really not sure because these are big issues. We've got climate change. We've got um, deforestation, uh, agriculture, big topics. But I have a feeling that our guest today is going to be able to explain how these things are connected and what we can do to make a change, to make sure that when we buy our chocolate, we are actually taking a bite out of deforestation and not contributing to it. So our guest today, Mateusz, is Louise Mabulo who is a UNEP Young Champion of the Earth. She's a farmer, an environmentalist, and an award-winning chef. And she's going to tell us all about how sustainable cocoa production is helping to restore ecosystems and improve livelihoods. So welcome, Louise. We can't wait to hear from you. Thanks so much for that amazing intro, Jennifer. And it's great to be here. Hi, Mateus. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much, Louise, for being with us today. Um, we do have uh, one simple question before we actually start. I think we need to put things start, uh, straight. And I'm pretty sure you can help us with that. I'm struggling myself. What is the difference between the cocoa and cacao? Or is there any difference? Am I pronouncing it right? Can you help us with that, please? Yeah, absolutely. You're pronouncing it perfectly right. So cocoa and cacao are basically the same thing. Uh, The difference is in processing. And also, it's also a linguistic difference. So in the Philippines, we call it cacao because it's part of our language and what we normally call it. But also worldwide, the raw product or even the trees and the pods and the beans are called cacao. But once they're processed into a powder that's made into chocolate, that's when we start calling it cocoa. So it's really a difference in the stage of processing and a linguistic difference more than anything. Hmm, thank you very much. So we don't make any mistakes um, if we say cacao or cocoa, actually, which is pretty good to know. Yeah, absolutely. Can I uh, also ask you, Louise, um, I know that you have uh, established the cacao project. And um, I'd love to know, first of all, how cocoa or cacao is connected to climate change, deforestation, and what you do through your initiative to help combat deforestation and address the impacts of climate change in the Philippines. It's a big question, I know, but you've been doing amazing work and I'm hoping that you'll help me fill in these gaps. To tell you the whole story of how cocoa is connected to deforestation and environment, I'd have to tell you the whole story from the very beginning of from when my hometown was hit by Super Typhoon Not 10. And this meant that this agricultural town that's extremely vulnerable to climate change would lose their income and their livelihoods. 
And these are farmers that I grew up with and worked with for years, and they're even family members. They were facing the reality that for months and years to come, they would not have a stable form of income. And in fact, the Philippines is one of the most vulnerable countries to hazards brought about by climate change with farmers being some of the most vulnerable groups. Um, many of them would have to resort to deforestation or cutting down trees for lumber just to create a form of income because they've lost their coconuts or their rice or their corn. Now, when the storm hit, we realized that some of the trees that were still standing were cocoa trees. And these trees have been growing for a long time, for centuries, in fact, and they're scattered across our landscapes, but they've never been used for production. And so we thought to ourselves, how could we utilize this to rebuild livelihoods and ensure that farmers are restoring the climate as well as creating a livelihood and form of income that is sustainable for them in the long term. And so we built the cacao project. And so the cacao project works to create agroforests. So beyond cacao trees, we do integrated farming practices. It's these forest ecosystems that provide services, like food, wind buffers, shade, help restore our soils and help restore water systems. And through that, farmers can become stewards to the environment and create more biodiverse food systems that are sustainable, that regenerate our climate, and also ensure that through their work, they're working with nature to create better harvests. And they say that chocolate is a guilty pleasure. Hmm? We can see that there's a lot of advantage of actually eating chocolate. This makes me think of something I read in a 2019 press release just after you won the UNEP Young Champions of the Earth Award. And you said something like this. I noticed that farming is associated with poverty and you were dedicated to fighting that stigma to bring value to the community and restore biodiversity. I thought that was really interesting. How do you show other young people that there is an opportunity in farming and that even through farming, they can help conserve and protect biodiversity? And that you were dedicated to fighting that stigma to bring value to the community and to restore biodiversity. So I thought that was really interesting. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you show other young people that there is an opportunity in farming and um, that they can help restore biodiversity, um, restore the nature in, in their, their homeland and also us around the world? If you think about it, farming and agriculture has been one of those ancient industries that have been around since mankind has been around. However, it's been unsustainable only recently. And it started becoming very uncool thanks to in part colonization and um, just commercialization of its industry. In fact, here in my community and many parts across Asia, people are taught that farming is associated to poverty. Um, in schools, teachers will tell kids that if you fail, you'll become a farmer. If you don't do well, or if you don't study well, you'll become a sweet potato farmer or a water spinach farmer. And so young people are conditioned to believe that agriculture entails failure. And that's not the case. In fact, farming is this amazing opportunity to create new green jobs, to create food systems, to look into the artistry of food and be part of the magic that involves creating air and water and dirt into something that is meaningful that people can share over a table. So what we do with the Cacao Project is basically illustrate and bring people back to the roots of what farming once was, which was landscape stewardship. And also show young people that it can be super cool to go farming, that it's not the stereotypical image of what a farmer is. When I ask someone, what do you think a farmer looks like? 
what would you say, Jennifer, what do you think a farmer looks like? It's an excellent question. Well, now I know a farmer can look like you. And I mean, it can be anybody. And I have to be aware that anyone and everyone could be a farmer. And and this is something that we really need to work on. So it's an amazing point. Louise, it did happen to me a few times. I'm at the shop looking for chocolate and I struggle. What kind of chocolate shall I buy? How do I know that I'm buying sustainable chocolate? What shall I look for? In terms of shopping and consumerism, there's something very difficult about labeling right now where people, you know, it's very easy for people to just pick off the most convenient thing on the shelf that they see, whether it's a shiniest label or the best packaging. But when you're a consumer and you want to think consciously, it's important to look at the certifications, whether it's fair trade, whether it's directly sourced. And those words, those tiny words on the back of a chocolate bar are incredibly important because it tells you where it comes from who the manufacturers are. So I think it's important that people go first into consciousness. What is this chocolate? Where is this product from? Is it single source? Is it directly sourced? Or maybe if all of these labels don't exist on the chocolate bar, it might be unsustainably sourced. So it's important to think twice about how you buy chocolate and take that extra step of just reading a label. Because what I understood is that there are two aspects of it. There's an environmental aspect and there's an ethical aspect. Can you also tell us a bit more about that ethical aspect? I think uh, many people tend to forget about uh, the second one as well. Definitely. So these days, especially if you look into the food systems of chocolate and the logistics of how it gets to your table or how it gets to your supermarket shelf, it goes through a very convoluted bureaucratic process. and That exists especially for cocoa. And right now, if you're sourcing cocoa from unsustainable sources, it might also include human rights offenses, child labor, slave labor. There is a huge gap between consumers and producers where people don't even know what chocolate looks like raw from the farm. Like once you pick it off the tree, it's this red pod and it comes from a bean. And when I tell that to people, it blows so many people's minds still. But all of us have probably had chocolate on a regular basis, maybe even daily. You might have had hot chocolate this morning or a lovely dessert just now. So it's really important to show people exactly where things come from and beyond the convenience, show the transparent system that goes on behind what you're picking off of a shelf. Yeah, indeed. And uh, we portray now here chocolate as a, a source of bad things that happens in the world. But in the same time, what is my understanding is that chocolate is even more complex than wine. It uh, might contain up to well, 400 flavor compound more than wine. And I have to tell you that I'm a big fan of wine myself. Uh, Jennifer. Yes, I was just going to jump in here. Uh, first, I'm going to admit something. I was at the supermarket the other day and tying into what Louise said before, I had two options before me. I had one cocoa, I call it, it was the cocoa powder, so the processed, one cocoa option that had the lovely fair trade symbol and it was also organic and certified and the other option, which was just a regular supermarket brand. Uh, I will say there was a, a price difference. There was a little price difference, but I had, to, I stopped, I looked at it because I, I knew where we'd be talking to you. I thought, let me just like register this. So what do you say to people who don't want to pay that extra price? How do we persuade everybody, including myself, to just immediately go for the fair trade option? 
Definitely. That's a really good point. I mean, the reality is that sometimes sustainable and fair trade and ethical isn't cheap and it's not something accessible to everyone. And it's reflective of a bigger system um, within food that cheaper ingredients and all of these things are more accessible to people at lower income, whereas sustainable needs to be the standard. Why aren't we pricing unsustainable options more? Because of these aren't just costing um, these aren't just costing us dollars. When you pick a chocolate off of a shelf and you look at the label, what do you think the costs involve? You'll think of producing, processing, shipping, and retailing, but you don't think of water and air pollution. You don't think of deforestation, of human rights abuse, of biodiversity loss. And that's a big aspect of what you're contributing to by not paying those extra dollars. And so that's a really important and salient point is that those extra dollars aren't exactly just something on a price tag. It could mean a better life for a farmer somewhere. It could mean someone's paid and treated fairly and equally. And it could mean that you're not deforesting hectares of natural pristine forests. That's an amazing point. Actually, that leads me into the next point. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about landscape stewardship and how this is connected to your work. Landscape stewardship is just the basic concept of taking care of our land, taking care of nature as it was given to us and uh, giving back to nature more than we take from it. There's a lot of movements now surrounding agroforestry and permaculture. They're incredibly important because a lot of food systems are designed around monocultures, where it's hectares and hectares of just vast farmland that grows one thing and it's degrading our soils. It's taking away biodiversity and nutrients from our soil. And people don't realize this, but soil is this incredible resource. It has the capacity to sequester tons of carbon, uh, gigatons of carbon, in fact, just by restoring even 1% of our soils. And the fact is that we're losing our soils. We have as little as 60 years of harvest left, according to some reports and articles from FAO. So it's really important that we recognize that our landscapes are this living, breathing thing that feeds us and sustains us. And that through agriculture and farming, it's also another part of the responsibility to restore those and protect them, or else we would lose our livelihoods entirely in the future if these soils lose their capability to produce. Actually, sir, I'm going to, I, I can't help myself, but I'm going to ask one more question connected to this. Sorry, Mateo. So I have to know, like, could you give me some examples because of the Philippines um, and growing cacao trees? Is that correct? Cacao trees or is it? Yes, that's right. Yes. Okay. So growing cacao trees. So what is what would it look like? So if we were standing in the forest and um, it was, let's I, I believe this is agroforestry practices, could you just walk us through or take us through what this would look like? What would we be seeing and what sort of biodiversity would be seeing all around us compared to maybe um, an area where uh, agriculture is unsustainable? I think one of the things that you will first notice if you land here and just magically show up at our farm is the bird song and the amount of noise that agroforests make. Just birds and bees and chickens and ducks and all these animals living um, and coexisting with nature and on these farms is something incredibly important and will be the first thing to hit you. I always say I can never ever record podcasts or voiceovers simply because you could hear them all the time everywhere. There's constant noise and you think that nature is peace and quiet. 
But in reality, nature is this living, breathing thing. You can hear the trees rustling and ebbing like a heartbeat whenever the wind blows by, or you can hear the streams going across the farms. And it's this incredibly busy, beautiful ecosystem that makes you reconnect with nature. And you'd see beautiful forest canopies of different trees, not just cocoa trees, but there's something I like to call where you have different levels of um, foliage cover. So you have bushes, you have crawling vines, you have mid-level trees and tall trees that create all of these different levels and canopies. So I think that one of the things that you'll notice here is just how alive it is versus going to a monoculture farm. And I've been to many rice farms where I had to just dig underneath and notice that there's no worms or there's no bugs and insects and creepy crawlies that are incredibly important to restore our soils. So I think that's one of the things um, that's that you'll first experience here. I'm a big fan of forest myself. I go and sometimes sleep in the forest. So yeah, uh, I, I can I can understand you. And uh, Jennifer, I recommend you that to, to look at uh, Louise's social network as well. She She's excellent in actually showing that the images and sounds of, of nature in her social network. Louise, tell us because uh, I also tend to struggle with social networks. I, I, I know that it can have very negative effect on young people, but you somehow managed to also transmit a positive message through social uh, media. How did you do it? What, are, what is the recipe for it? Yeah, social media to me is either a blessing or a curse. You know, it's something amazing, but also simultaneously something that can tap away so much of your time. Um, I don't consider myself very active, on social media, but then again, I'm a Gen Zer and a digital native. So I grew up with social media as an inherent part of our lifestyle. And I think it's an incredibly powerful resource to communicate, to uh, talk to people that are in different parts of the world that might have a different situation from you, but could perhaps reflect on something that you've done that is similar. Um, I always use it to talk about environmental issues and nature. And I think it's a powerful tool to communicate things that maybe someone in the global north would have never experienced, but something is super common in the global south. I think in the past, I've used it to communicate about typhoons and weather disasters in the Philippines, how it impacts farmers and the aftermath of it. You always see disasters on the news, but you never see the lives of rebuilding afterwards. And that's something I use social media for. It can be used to mobilize young people to do tree planting programs or get more Gen Zers on board and thinking farming is cool and fun. So I think it's incredibly important because you have the whole world at your fingertips and how incredible is that? And all of this information just available to you. And so it's just really a matter of thinking of what you can do to strategically approach social media so that it has a positive impact as much as possible to the people around you and to the potential of the rest of the world that you could reach. Thank you very much. But uh, what I want to, or what brings me is also a reflection on, because you are very inspirational. You are a person that uh, listening to you, you want to move from your chair and you want to act, which is great. And uh, I believe that message should be passed on to other people. How we can actually mobilize the young generation to uh, help restore the, the ecosystem. Because that's also, as you know, the, the subject of our uh, podcast. And we need to know how to mobilize not only young people, but also ourselves to make that small change in everyday life. I'm, I'm pretty sure you will be an excellent person to tell us on 
how to actually make our make the the world better place yeah i wouldn't say i'm the best person i would say that everyone has their own different stories and all these different unique cultural situations in different parts of the world so I did have an example of how I managed to build my social venture from social media and mobilizing young people from a seed exchange program into now what is building agroforest. But in someone in a different part of the world, it could involve getting their community to grow mushrooms or building urban permaculture farms. And there's all of these different ways that young people can get involved. And young people have such a key role because as digital natives and Gen Zers and the ones who are the most active on the internet, we can dictate trends. We can make environmentalism, sustainability cool. We can create designs that make sustainable packaging more flashy and interesting on the shelves. Or maybe if you're in fashion design and clothing, you can create um, a line of sustainable clothing that's accessible and cheap and um, easy to kind of distribute and is inclusive to all. It's really building inclusive spaces that young people can do. And have that vision and kind of spark of hope of the world that we want to build because it's not just you know this movement for specifically people with environment it's not just you know the Greta Thunbergs and David Attenboroughs who are going to change the world and make um, environmentalism cool but it's every single person every single one has a role to play whether you're a young person in a rural community or this cool trendy it girl in the city you all have a role to play in building an incredible new world and system that has sustainability and environmentalism and better systems as an inherent part of it as a standard and not as a bonus or an add-on into our situation. I wanted to ask you something. So as you're inspiring the world and young people um, on a daily basis, I see that you don't only inspire through your cacao project, but you also have a culinary initiative, I believe. And um, I see that you were a child prodigy in the culinary world. And I wanted to know a little bit more about how you not only entice young people to be to enter the farming world, but also you um, attract those who maybe are perhaps are not as passionate about the environment, but perhaps are really passionate about food. And so you can get them on that level. So I was wondering a little bit more about, I wanted to hear a bit more about your work in this culinary world. There's so many ways because food is, a, is an incredibly amazing and powerful tool that everyone can relate to because everyone enjoys it. Um, but going back, I began my career as a chef. Um, I was a master chef junior as a little girl from 12 years old. And then I just kind of got catapulted into this culinary world of Gordon Ramsay's and fast paced kitchens and all these different chefs who would train me or bring me to different parts of the world and do pop-up dinners. And slowly as I got into it, I realized that food isn't just what you put on a plate or what you enjoy at a table, or it's, it even goes beyond me as a chef in a kitchen. It goes to a huge network of logistics, of farmers, of designers, and all of these um, different moving parts that consist of a food system. And that's how I kind of got inspired because I realized that slowly many young people are interested in food or like social media or posting about the food they eat, but not many people realize where it's coming from or how it gets to their tables. So what I did was I went into farm to table cuisine, which is kind of shortening the supply chain of where your ingredients came from to how it got to you. And then it also started extending to telling the stories of the producers 
um, behind the plates that you serve. So I did a lot of pop-up dinners in fancy restaurants in different parts of the world, which were kind of private dinners where I could serve a dish and also stand at the table and tell you this ingredient came from this farmer and she's this amazing auntie who makes delicious tomatoes and the best ever tomatoes here in the Philippines. Or this lemon tart was made from calamansi, which is this beautiful local ingredient. Um, it's using healy nuts, which is this endemic ancient heirloom ingredient and kind of almost getting people on board with the story through storytelling and enjoying it on their plates and getting that whole experience through taste, through sound and through fellowship and gathering through a dinner. So it's people who would normally have these amazing fast high lifestyles, but also um, eventually be able to just even for a small portion of their lives get to enjoy and have this experience of seeing everything that goes on behind um, the plate. Eloise, I'm, yeah, I'm very happy that you mentioned storytelling. I'm really intrigued to, to hear the story that you can outline for us for the next 10 years. You know that uh, we are now uh, entering, as of last year, we enter a UN decade for ecosystem restoration. Can you maybe portray us a story of a cacao industry in 10 years' time? Or what can be done in the context of the ecosystem restoration in, in the cacao agriculture slash industry? I mean, the next 10 years are critical in terms of changing the systems and the way we grow things and the way we produce. My hope is that uh, cocoa agriculture can build a new system of resilience for smallholder farmers across the world, that it can be um, inherently regenerative, that it can restore soils and landscapes, that it could sequester carbon, which it has great potential to do. And that through purchasing bars of chocolate, people can not only sequester, like, sequester carbon and reduce their carbon footprint, but also be able to help the lives of farmers um, improve the situation in places around, across the global South. And also perhaps um, create better food security and build a food system where sustainability is just the expectation and not a bonus because right now as it is people are putting certifications and add-ons but we need to change the language where um, organic and regenerative is the normal and how many chemicals are you adding into all of these unsustainable packaging so really flip the switch and flip the narrative on chocolate production across the world and make it something that isn't so tragic as deforestation, human rights abuses, but something that is hopeful that we can all truly enjoy guilt-free chocolate. Well, um, uh, I, the future looks promising and thank you for leading us and guiding us there. I wanted to ask you a little bit about gender equality uh, as we move into the next decade. So I know you're a vocal supporter of more gender equality in agriculture, and you've recently been selected as a member of the inaugural UN Women 30 for 2030 Network with other change makers from all around the globe. So what role do you think young women can play in restoration action? Oh, definitely. Women have such a huge role in um, restoration. In fact, in the farming industry, over 43% of the agriculture labor force is women. And that's incredible considering it's considered a male-dominated field. Young women have the opportunity to set precedent for women-led businesses, women-led agricultural spaces, and women-led um, initiatives that restore the environment. Because so far, a lot of these are male-dominated. 
But in the climate action movement, women have been at the forefront. And it's just a matter of bleeding that into all the other industries that already exist and even transforming classically unsustainable and male dominated industries into something that is gender inclusive. How can people get involved in your initiatives? Because as we've said, you have quite a few and which is great because there are options for everyone. And I know I'm going to try to promote your work as as much as possible. And uh, we admire what you do, but we need to get more people on board. So how can they get involved in your work? Absolutely. There's a lot of ways people can get involved. Um, One of them, I guess the easiest way is to support us on social media. We're the Cacao Project PH. But also um, another thing is visit us, get to meet our farmers and see the human aspect of what I'm talking about is you have to really immerse in the community or see the agroforests to really feel that connection with nature and the potential for what can happen to come. And it's not just that, but you can also right now we've started producing our own chocolate so you can start buying chocolates from our farmers at the moment it's available locally but hopefully very soon we'll bring it internationally if you'd like to help us bring it internationally you're welcome to um and i guess just start buying sustainable chocolate and increase the demand for that because that's the reason why we do what we do and the reason that fuels a lot of our work is creating more demand and more hype for sustainable products and making that what is normal instead of um, you know making this the more normal accessible option instead of unsustainable options that makes total sense to me making sustainable the norm so yes I look forward to the day when that is truth when I don't go to the supermarket and even see the other option I want there to be one option only and that's just the sustainable fair trade organic, non-organic, but definitely the sustainable option. So I hope that's the direction we're going in. I know you're helping to make that happen. I have another question for you, of course. I was wondering, how do you work with local farmers? I know you do a lot of work. You've done so much training through your cacao project with local farmers. I was wondering if you could give us an example of what kind of training is involved and how you work with local farmers to really help improve their livelihoods. So we have several training programs, but one of the primary ones are our farmer field schools, where we teach farmers about regenerative systems, agroforestry systems, even financial and resilience building within their um, kind of communities, which is really important. But another aspect of our work in our trainings is it's not just a one-way learning system that we give information to farmers. We also learn from them and have them exchange their own traditional and indigenous knowledge and their techniques. Um, Some amazing things that we've learned from them is kind of how to identify the weather by the sunset or how to attract wind through whistling and sound waves. And all of these basic bits of knowledge, even lunar cycles and when it's best to plant a cocoa seed, we were able to test it at our farmer field schools and back it up with scientific knowledge. And so learning is kind of for us a collaborative effort. And we try to make sure that our community has the opportunity to speak and present unique ideas and unique systems that have once been lost, or even crazy stories from their grandmother about how it's best to plant a sweet potato next to cocoa trees, and try to find the scientific middle ground between all of it, which is incredibly important nowadays as we translate knowledge into um, a greener economy and a greener future. But also as young people, we hold an inherent responsibility to preserve traditional knowledge from our ancestors. I actually... That leads me into something that I came across. 
Can you please explain what the term bayanihan means? And please correct my incorrect pronunciation. Oh, that's a perfect pronunciation, actually. So bayanihan is uh, this concept in the Philippines where we help each other. Um, it's usually seen in kind of the systems where people are moving huts or changing their houses. Everyone, everyone in the village would go ahead and carry a hut and move it to a new location. So that's kind of bayanihan. It's volunteerism. And we see that in the aftermaths of typhoons, everyone would come out. The second the storm stops, everyone comes out of their house and starts cleaning and clearing the way of the streets to help um, rescue vehicles come in. And then our village chief would probably cook a giant meal out of whatever vegetables he could forage and everyone gets to share it. And so Bayanihan spirit is seen in the Filipino culture and hopefully something that um, can resonate in different parts of the world. Well, you definitely embody that spirit and you help transmit it through all your various channels. And um, I'm definitely on board. What about you, Matej? Definitely. I was just making notes that, Luis, please make sure to send us an invitation to one of your trainings. That would be wonderful. Luis, it was really great pleasure chatting with you today. And uh, I hope that one day we will make it to one of those trainings and then we can have a bar of chocolate together. Uh, it is needless to say that you are a great inspiration to, to us and hopefully also through this podcast to many other young people. Thank you one more time for being with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here and for this incredible conversation. Yes. And thank you, Louise. You've, you're an inspiration to us all. And we will try to follow you and like and retweet and uh, do everything we can do possible to promote your work and uh, follow you on Instagram. Thanks again to you, Louise, to Matej, and to the whole podcast team. And it's been a real honor for me. And um, thanks to all of you listening. And please stay tuned for next week's episode. And please don't forget to review us as well as talk about us on social media using our hashtag Generation Restoration. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This podcast has been brought to you by the United Nations Environment Programme Europe Office and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations.